Welcome to Psychotherapy. I am Jet Dunlap, and this is episode 34. In this episode, you are going to come along for a journey with me into my first public stand-up routine. Can you believe it? I actually got here. This episode will be broken down into two parts. You're going to hear the first part, the part that leads up to me actually getting on stage. Second part will be me doing the comedy and then what happened afterwards. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my long-awaited journey to going up on stage. That episode starts right now. I thought I could consciously be funny. I was, I want to say, around eight or nine years old. I think that's about the time when I was at a, a lunch with my family. And when I was a kid, my mom's family was so big. That's the only side of any of my family that I have family. My dad was a uh, only child, a product of his mother and his father. Well, <laughs> that's how most humans are born, a product of their mother and father, unless they're a seahorse. So maybe starfish, I don't know, but seahorses, definitely, they're different. My dad's mother raised him as a single mother, so he had no family. There's, he has some half-brothers, and he was a secret family, and we'll go into that another time when it's uh, the Mark Dunlap tales. Like duck tales, but not as funny. Actually, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of parallels. His dad was a very, very wealthy duck who swam through gold pieces in his safe. So there are some similarities, but that is not where this tale begins. This tale... I was about eight or nine years old and we were all at lunch. Now, my family basically like run farmer's market in L.A. This is long before the Grove. As a matter of fact, in the parking lot of where the Grove is right now in L.A., there was just this empty lot that had a place called Funland. And Funland was like a giant tent for kids to play arcade games and go on kind of rinky uh, rides that were like horses that go around in circles. We were at farmer's market and there were about 40, 45 of us. My grandfather would take a lunch from his big, powerful law firm job at Liberty Mutual. That was on Wilshire. And he was in the top floor of this high rise, one of the few ones out on that side of L.A. And so he'd take a lunch and he'd go and meet my grandmother, uh, Marianne, and we'd all go to farmer's market. And there were so many of us that in this main area, we'd push all these round tables together. So my mom is a product of nine brothers and sisters, and they adopt another, so 10. Basically, all of them were there. They were very young because I was uh, the first grandchild. And we were all sitting there eating lunch, and I was doing my normal joke stuff. I was always making jokes. I can't remember a time when I was a kid or any time in my life where I wasn't trying to be funny. And I remember my grandfather would give us money, and he called them pow bucks. Now, his name was pow because when I was a kid, I would sit in my high chair, the legend has it, in the breakfast room of my grandparents' three-story house, and I would throw my fist out and go, pow, 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 and I never call him grandfather. I never call him a grandfather. That's not an impression of any race, by the way, because that would be racist. It would be racial, not racist. Uh, Imitation is the highest form of flattery, whoever that is. I would call him pow, and uh, that stuck. So everyone in the family has called him pow since 1979. He would give us pow bucks, which meant whenever you were out with this guy, he didn't want you to spend your own money. I mean, that was from forever since he was a grandfather. I guess he wasn't this generous when he was a dad. But from the 70s, he would always give you money no matter where you were. Very generous guy. Gives my uncle, John. My uncle John was the uh, youngest of my uncles. So he and I were only about 12 years apart. He and I happened to get the same food. Anyone could take the money and go to wherever they wanted to at farmer's market. I took the food and I was going to get pizza with my uncle. And I was telling my uncle 
this joke, Uncle John. I can't remember what it was, but I always like getting him like a side and telling him like my best eight-year-old humor. Now, it was usually situational. I was not a joke teller. I couldn't tell a knock-knock joke. I still can't. I mean, I could tell you one, but it'll cost you. I'm not very good at that, but I was telling him a situational joke, and I was excited because he was kind of the coolest one. He knew all about movies. He took me to see Back to the Future and all that stuff, so he was a big movie buff. He took me to Universal. He taught me how to sneak into the movies. You know, he was the cool one. He was lead singer of a band. Anyway, so I told him this joke, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he, was, he laughed. He actually laughed. He genuinely laughed at this joke, and he said, you're getting better. When you first started telling jokes, and I assume he was talking about when I was younger, like five or six years old, you had this terrible ratio. <laughs> Basically, he said, you had like 10 jokes that you'd throw out every minute, and only about one of them stuck. Now, you're up to about three. He's like, so keep trying. You're not great, but that was a pretty good joke. And he was joking about how he expected my next good joke to be days from then. And I remember, and I hadn't remembered this for a while, but that story stuck with me, that that was probably one of the first times I thought about being funny on purpose. Because it was the first time I ever had that notion that that actually resonated with me. Again, I wasn't a guy who could really pay attention in school, and everything I learned was verbal. But because I had ADD, dyslexia, my brain's ability to process information due to a lack of neurons firing correctly was very limited. And if I didn't have an interest in it, what would happen is my ADD creates a lack of adrenaline. So if you're in class, you have this natural, don't think of adrenaline as like jumping off a bridge, right? Uh, bungee jumping. If you have a normal amount of adrenaline, you can keep interested in a subject you're not interested in. Does that make sense? So, you know, it doesn't have to be something fascinating. It just has to be something that holds your interest. My chair is making creaky noises. Apologize for that. Okay. So that I didn't have. So I couldn't focus on something that wasn't interesting to me. This moment when my uncle told me that I had increased in something was probably the first time intellectually I had been told that. And I remember thinking at the time, I've got to get better at this. And it's not like I went out and hit the books. I didn't go down to the local library and find the encyclopedia on jokes because, oh my God, if that existed, it was probably the worst thing in the world. I didn't have any way of doing it. And I just thought, okay, I'll look at situations. I came from a big family. We were always jockeying for position. It was 40 people yelling at the top of their lungs, uh, Sicilian family, trying to get a word in edgewise. And you're familiar with this, most of you. That taught me this ability. You had to inject into a conversation, but you also had to be interesting enough to hold that conversation. This was before kids were interesting and special. When I was a kid, you weren't interesting and special based on the fact that you were a kid. So I had to get clever. And the reason I'm telling you this very long story is because I did stand-up for you guys. Really, I, was, I went to a stand-up comedy club and I did comedy. Now, before I get to that story, because that was just a that was just a morsel to wet your beak on more minutia. I told you the story of my Uncle John and how I first got interested in comedy. I could tell you hundreds of stories of me as a kid where comedy was a huge part of who I was, how I got out of trouble, how I got my teachers not to pick on me, how I got students not to pick on me, how I passed classes, how I got out of detention. I will tell you one more anecdotal story of me as a kid in comedy. We had this substitute teacher when I went to De La Salle. It was a Catholic school out in uh, Granada Hills. Still is. I only got attention when I'd make jokes. Don't worry, I'll get back to the comedy club thing in a while, but this is a flashback episode, so stick with me. I think I was in third grade. I just started practicing accents, right? So impressions. Why not? Everyone does that when they're in third grade. You try and do impressions of your favorite cartoon or whatever. 
I thought, okay, I don't know how much I actually like thought about this, like actually considered it, but I did it anyway. We had a substitute teacher come in that day and he was doing role. And when he was doing role, he said my name. He goes, uh, Dunlap. And I go, yeah, that's me right here, Dunlap. And he goes, oh, okay, cool. And then he goes on. Then later on, he asked me another question. He's like, hey, the guy from Texas. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that I'm, I'm from Texas. Uh, uh, what's the question? He's like, I'm from Texas too. What part? And I'm like, uh, the, the middle area, I guess. I, I don't really know. I'm not that smart. So the rest of the day, I had to pretend I was from the same state that this dude was. And now that I'm saying it out loud, there's probably no way that he actually believed that I was from Texas. But this substitute teacher had enough of a sense of humor that he went along with it. So I had to pretend to be from Texas the rest of the day. And I'm sweating, but everyone is hanging on my every word. Everyone is laughing and smiling. I mean, come on, how would this not be funny to the class? This is my opportunity to really rise up in the ranks of the classroom. So every time he called me, like, he'd be like, why don't you read aloud? I couldn't read aloud, so I'd be like, sub, I, I, I'm really just not that great at reading, so uh, I, I don't know if I can do this, but I'll try my best. Uh, if you can move on to me, uh, uh, I'd appreciate that. Now, I also do remember one of my excuses was too later, so he asked me a question to read again, because reading out loud was one of the things these teachers did. I think they just did it because they were nursing a hangover or something. Anyway, he comes to me again, and one of my other excuses was, you know, I really love to. I mean, listen, I love reading. Reading's the best thing in the world. Reading is a fundamental, and I believe in fundamentals, but I forgot my spectacles. I don't have my glasses on me right now, but I would. I would read the hell out of that book. You know, Texas boy to Texas boy. By the end of the day, I'm like, I don't know if I can take this. Thank God class is almost over. At like 2.25, right before the bell, he says, good news, guys. Your teacher's going to be out for a week. Maybe she had a baby or something. I don't know. I'm going to be your teacher for the rest of the week. And I had to hold a Texas accent for the rest of that week. So that was the second time I ever remember trying to be funny on purpose. It kind of backing me into a corner. I just had to tell that story because it popped in my head and I think it's an amazing story. Those are two stories of when I was a lad where humor was very important to me and how I got positive attention. And another part of it was the class clown is usually as ADD. Back then, we didn't really know what ADD was. They just thought I was weird and a class clown, which I was. One last story about me and comedy before we go into the night of a million laughs, I call it, with Jet Dunlap at the Ha Ha Cafe. Gina, are you excited? I'm so excited. Okay, all right, okay, good. So you heard Gina, she's excited, you're excited. Here's one last story. In 2016, I started to lose my mind, and I talked about this before. I was walking around in my yard, and one day was walking to my shed, and in the middle of the basketball court area, I forgot where I was. And I'm going to talk about this briefly because I have a lot of PTSD about it, and it's really hard for me to talk about. But I'm going to try and breeze through it because there's a point to it. I lost where I was. I didn't know who I was. I snapped out of it. I came back. I told my wife. Later on this week, it started to reoccur. I was working on my truck, forgot where I was, didn't know it was in my hand. I dropped my phone, broke my phone. I didn't understand the concept of being broken. I knocked over my hard drive on my computer. It was broken. I kept shaking it like some kind of ape. I didn't understand what was going on and couldn't figure out why it was broken. I had delirium. I ended up going to the hospital, to a mental hospital. I'm freaking out. Horrible terror. It took me a long time to remember who I was, where I was, what I was. Even basic things. Showering. Going to sleep. I couldn't do it. I finally get the right help and they put me on antipsychotics. 
I'm coming back from this mental hospital where I'm holding a pillow the whole time and pacing in a hallway. I mean, I was (laughs) real nuts, terrified. I was being driven home and I was just talking. I remember it's been weeks since I had uh, been ill. And I said something offhand that was slightly amusing. took me months to actually get back to zero where I felt comfortable. But I said something and it made my mom and Gina laugh. And my mom said that that was the first time she knew I was getting better because the way she knew I was who I was was through my sense of humor. And it wasn't for a year till I actually felt I could talk consecutively like I am now without running into a blank spot. Just picture you're watching a keyboard type and then all of a sudden the keyboard goes blank for a while and keeps going down in paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. And then the words start up again. That was my brain. And so in 2016, 2017, I would have never dared do even what I'm doing right now. I had to bow out of being a minister at one of my closest friend's weddings because I would hit these blank gaps. And I thought at the time, terrified, after all the stories I told you of when I was a kid, that that was it for me and that I wasn't going to be able to do comedy again or anything that was public speaking and I'd have to completely redefine my personality. So why do I tell you that story? That was the baggage that was on my shoulders when I told you guys that I was going to do stand-up. I said, I'm going to do it because I told you guys I was going to do it and I meant it. And I did. I did. I I told you guys, and I I believe in that. I hold myself to that. When I say something, I mean it. But I was scared. I was scared not of the actual act of getting up there and having that gap I did when I lost my mind. Probably residually I did. But it's my identity. I used to tell Gina at night, I'd say, I've failed at so many things I've tried. But when I was an actor and I didn't get the gig, whatever. You know, I was acting like an actor. When I was a wedding DJ, give me a break. Emceeing, if they didn't like me, which they always did, of course, I killed it. But if they didn't, oh no, I'm not a wedding DJ anymore. I could go on and on. Photography, all those things. They were things I did and did well, but they did not define who I was as a person. My mom didn't know I was myself until she heard me make a slight joke when I was coming back from a mental hospital and she knew I could get better. For two years, I didn't know I was myself until I could actually stand in a room and tell a story. And when I was a kid, the only time I got attention from my favorite uncle, from my family, or got in a position where I wasn't being teased in class and actually got some kind of fraction of popularity was due to humor. It has been my lifeline my entire life. So even though I know I'm funny, even though I know I can hold on to a mic and stand in front of a room and talk, I was terrified. Not that that was a rational thought. But that if I got rejected for what made me me, I would just (laughs) disintegrate. I would just cease to exist on this planet. Because no matter what incarnation of Jet you've met, you know that he's funny. And that was what I was holding on to. And that is what stopped me until I was 40 years old. Two points for mentioning how old I am in every episode. So, now... I take you, not live, to the story of the night I did my first stand-up act. Gina, you can lean into the microphone now. All right. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thanks. You partially didn't believe 
that I do this, but at the same time knew I would. How long have I been talking about this, doing stand-up? Oh, forever. It's always been not at the forefront of like, you know, the, your to-do list or, or, you know, what you're going to pursue, but it was always like, oh, I'll get to it eventually. Or like, oh, you know, I'll do stand-up at some point. That was since we started dating. And I think we both understood that when I started it, it was going to be a focus forever. And I think a lot of my hesitation was that I knew once I got into it, it would be the last kind of career I did or tied to the last career I did. So I think that was a part of the stalling too, because I was going to have to take it seriously because it was in that last, I want to say bastion. Is that a word? Last bastion of something? Yeah, I don't know if that works in that context. So I'm going to say bastion. It was my last bastion. And you'll just have to understand what that means, even if it's not a word. Basically, when I started that, I was starting the end of what I was going to do. And maybe there's some kind of fear of mortality in that, too. I don't know. I think it's more that you had so many other things that you were interested in. Not necessarily the thing that you were going to stick with, but you right. wanted to try out all these other things. Well, then you're making the same point, though, because I wanted to try those out first. Right. I didn't try out stand-up first, because if I did stand-up first, I'm not going to go from having a mic for 40 minutes to myself in front of a room where everyone's hanging on my every word. Right. Do you it know was, what I mean? It was going to be the thing, your sole focus. And you're that way with podcasting, too, where now that it's a habit, you do it consistently. And it's always on your mind that, okay, well, I have to do this next show or I have to do this intro or whatever. And I think stand-up is that way for you, where now you've been on stage, you have a thirst for it. Right. I think podcasting came as a consistent thing. And then once I lock into consistency, I keep doing it. Now that there's an audience, it's different. But at first, it was just this desire to keep going. I knew with stand-up, it was going to be something that I feed off the crowd, where it's very difficult to feed off the crowd here. For obvious reasons, I'm in a basement with you and there's no crowd. So we knew it was very important. We knew it was something I was going to go into. So now let's talk about the actual process. I am dyslexic. You may have heard that in a couple of my episodes. So actually finding like a comedy club to do this at, which should be the simplest thing in the world, I had a hard time with. And that ended up being something that stressed me out so much I didn't really look. So then I got Gina involved and she found somewhere. So going back a little bit, we had gone back and forth talking. He's like, oh, I'm going to do stand up. I'm going to do stand up. And finally, I was like, "Okay, well, when? Because you said... I think a year ago, you started saying, this month, I'm going to do it. I think it was New Year's resolution. I'm like, I started telling people, 2018, I'm going to do stand-up this year. Yeah, and not even just broadcasting that into the ether, but on the phone, I'd hear you talking to individual people saying like, I'm doing stand-up this month. That's something that's going to happen. I was like a lying liar <laughs> until now. Well, yeah, I know. And there's nothing facetious about you, know, about you yeah. doing that. You're not intentionally going out saying, I'm going to lie to this person. It's not that you're a liar, <laughs> but you do like many comedians. Um, I'm a storyteller. And, and creative I use people. hyperbole. Yes. I you, warn them when I'm not going to. Yeah. So I'd hear you talking to your friends and saying, I'm going to do stand-up and... That you dismissed it as he's full of shit. Uh, well, maybe a little. But no, I, I think that it was an eventual thing. But I think that the the timeline that you set to the person you were talking to. Right. I get what you're saying. That wasn't true. That wasn't genuine. Like, I'm going to do it before the end of the summer. I do put things out in the universe and accountable to people so that I can hold myself that way. Because obviously, breaking promises myself is easy. I knew I was going to do it. My timeline would vary. Just like you and everyone else, something would come up that would give me rational justification for the reason why not. I'd injure myself. You know, an event would come up. Oh, we have a trip coming up. Right, right, right. Oh, well, I booked a job. When was the thing that I did that made it a just no chance 
no looking back. I'm going to do this. And you knew, done. So after Pow died, um, right after uh, Jet decided... I think it was the day after. Yeah, that he that he was going to get a, a tattoo, um, which is... I think pretty a pretty common reaction in a lot of guys when someone near and dear to them uh, passes, yeah. they decide to get a tattoo. Yeah. Um, but he really thought it out, and we went together to this great place in Simi. So he decided he was going to get a quote from his grandfather. My grandfather's most famous quote, even the one on his bookmark and in his uh, obituary. Yeah. So Pal used to, he loved having the family around. He loved everyone having lively discussions. When the conversation would kind of stagnate or it would get a little quiet in the room, he would come in and he would go noise, 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 noise. It could never be quiet in the house. When someone was speaking, if he couldn't hear it or if it was kind of muffled or something, he would go louder and funnier or if someone just wasn't being funny. Right. My family had this amazing thing that really helps as far as being entertaining is he would go, this story is boring, yeah. louder and funnier. And yeah. my aunts, even when they had children, like I remember specifically KK, Catherine, she teaches up in Santa Cruz. She's a professor. She has these two uh, boys, Keenan and Quinn. And whenever they were being boring, she'd be like, stop being boring. I yeah. think that was just kind of the externalization of it. We didn't do this with non-family members right you have to be you know? polite to people generally when right that's what i'm trying family. to say it was never like i was at the dentist and i'm like louder and funnier enough of the bicuspid <laughs> stuff put in a little color in this story <laughs> so we went and you got this tattoo and you decided it was gonna be louder and funnier and you put it on your the inside of your forearm on your right arm right so that the the thought behind it was when you're doing stand-up and you're holding a mic Every time you look down at your arm, there it is, telling you louder and funnier. Correct, Gina. That's exactly how the story was. And I'll start from there. Don't look at me like that. I am not the comedian. No, you certainly aren't. <laughs> Let's end there. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this program. To listen to the rest of this story, please turn your cassette over or simply go to the next podcast. Now some brief music for no reason. <laughs>